Our scripture this morning is chapter 3 of the Gospel of Mark, and I know that Reverend Terry, thank you, thank you, Reverend Terry, led us off with chapters 1 and 2 the last two weeks. And as a reminder, throughout the United Church of Christ, in a number of different denominations, this challenge to read straight through the Gospel of Mark is being undertaken in a number of churches as a way to think about how we might look at a gospel from start to finish at some point during our uh, calendar year in worship and a way to increase our overall biblical literacy and how we might wonder about the gospel more when we read it start to finish in different ways. And so, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, I encourage you, if you have a Bible at home, to bring it with you. And if you're somebody who's never once written in your Bible, I encourage you to think about how that's actually okay. It's okay to bring a pencil. It's okay to have a Bible that you write your questions in and that is a legacy to those who come after you. Let me tell you, when I look at my grandmother's Bible and I see all the questions she asked in the margins, sometimes I think that's the same question I'm asking right now. And so I encourage you to bring your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, tell me. We would love to give you a Bible. Each of you is a theologian in your own life, and so I encourage you to take up that theology within you and to find this scripture a gift to you. So here's Mark chapter 3. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the hand shriveled, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and they began to plot with the Herodians about how they might kill Jesus. And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard about all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, all the regions across the Jordan and the Tyre and Sidon. And because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted and they came to him. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And these are the 12 that he appointed Simon, to whom he gave the name of Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boandrus, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. And then Jesus, he entered into a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, they came down from Jerusalem and said, he is possessed, By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. 
And so Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. And then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone to call him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And he asked, Who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and brother and sister and sibling. And Reverend Terry asked you this question last week, so I'm going to ask it again before I go on. Take a moment to sit with that scripture. Think about, after hearing that chapter, if there are certain phrases or images that stay with you. Are there questions in your mind? Are there things that you don't really agree with? So let's take a moment to think on that. Holy God, I ask that you bless this time together in our worship, that we may have this text illuminated through our time together, that we may feel your presence as we focus in on holy words passed down from generation to generation. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we, before we get started this morning, because I know not everyone's here every single week, so I'm going to review just a couple of the quick and dirty facts about the Gospel of Mark, just to hold as a background context for you. So the first one is this. Mark is the first and is the oldest of the canonical Gospels. So when you open up your Bible, there's an Old Testament or a Hebrew Bible, and there's a New Testament. And in the New Testament, there are these four Gospels that are called the canonical Gospels. And they are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark is the oldest and the first, and it provides a lot of source material that Matthew and that Luke use later on. Second thing is this. The author of the Gospel of Mark is unknown, but our best guess, scholarly, is that it was John Mark, who was a companion and an interpreter to St. Peter. And that's why we use that name, Mark, for this Gospel so this is written while Christians were suffering Nero's persecution, and it was written to that audience. It provided this urgent account of the life of Jesus and what that life of Jesus might do in terms of instilling hope in those who were being persecuted or facing these uncertain futures. Next is that the Gospel of Mark offers this very whirlwind view of Jesus's ministry. It's told initially as these oral stories. It's captured in here, but it's very much a whirlwind view. You're not going to get the same level of detail in the Gospel of Mark that you do when you read the other Gospels. And finally, why is there a lion on your bulletin cover? Well, that's because this is the Christian art symbol that is used to represent Mark and the Gospel of Mark. In Christian art and iconography, each of the Gospels' writers have a symbol 
Sometimes people ask me what are on these, and each of these are a gospel writer symbol, and Mark's is the lion. It's one of the four beings described as coming in Revelation. So with this context in mind, let's dive in. The third chapter of Mark, in many ways, is a continuation of the second chapter. So the final statement that happened in the second chapter that you read last week was in which Jesus proclaims, the Sabbath was made for humanity rather than humanity for the Sabbath. This is a statement of kind of radical compassion and grace from God that would come as a shock to many in the day. And in this third chapter of Mark, Jesus continues to be really focused on Sabbath and on healing people and on this idea of healing and doing ministry on the Sabbath. And so to begin this morning's scripture, we read about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. So remember from the scripture, he went into the synagogue and there was a man with a hand that was perhaps injured or perhaps he was born that way. And he was in a great deal of distress and Jesus heals that man's hand, asks him to extend it out. And he does this healing on the Sabbath day. And looking around, there's a great many folks watching, and Jesus has this sense of anger, and he's deeply distressed. And so the Pharisees, viewing this, then go out and plot against Jesus. And I really love this part of scripture, because in it, we see Jesus really expressing some real emotion. He is, quote, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, and he looks around at them in anger. And this is a Jesus who I can imagine that a lot of humanity can relate to, a Jesus who's experiencing firsthand the frustrations of being human, of encountering resistance from other people. And in this moment that is both deeply personal, it's about Jesus and this man who's being healed, it's also a public moment in which the Pharisees are looking onwards as Jesus does this Sabbath healing. So in the scripture about Sabbath day healing, we read of a Jesus who's flipping the script. That's kind of a, a phrase that could be applied to much of the gospel of Mark with regards to how Jesus is acting and how he's acting so often throughout his ministry. He goes against these socially accepted norms and societally accepted behaviors. He goes ahead and heals on the Sabbath day. And this is in line with a lot of other things that Jesus does throughout his ministry, going against the grain of society dining with tax collectors and women from the margins. So this idea of Jesus going against the grain is a primary theme throughout the Gospel of Mark and is one that's raised up prominently here in chapter 3. And one way to think about this going against the grain Jesus that it always reminds me of is to think about the surprise of Jesus in the world, that he brings with him the unexpected, the unimagined in life and in ministry and death and in resurrection one year, the United Church of Christ's General Synod, which is when our churches from all over the country meet every other year, one of the themes that was in there was the unexpected Jesus. And in some ways, it was kind of a funny theme because it reminds us, many of us, of those times where you're you know, going through a store and all of a sudden you see a shirt with Jesus' face on it or a keychain with Jesus on it, you know, this unexpected Jesus. But it also brings about this deep soul reminder that there is this unexpected Jesus in our life. There's a bit of a surprise to Jesus when we see these holy or sacred moments or encounters that happen that we don't expect, and we see them and we witness them, and there's a reminder to be open to the surprise of Jesus. And so I encourage you to think about this unexpected Jesus who's healing on the Sabbath, who's going against the social scripts, as a reminder of how Jesus might show up in our lives still today, somehow contrary to what might be expected. 
So as we return to the scripture in verse 7, we find the next section is that Jesus is attempting to withdraw to a lake with his friends. So he's constantly trying to get away, and he is uh, ever present with the people regardless. So Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd followed from Galilee. And it describes in this scripture section all these different people from all these different places coming to follow Jesus because there's this word that's gotten out about his radical level of healing. And so these people with diseases, it says, are pushing forward to touch him. So there's this theme also in the Gospels of Jesus about Jesus attempting desperately to retreat to solitude or prayer, meanwhile the word continuing to travel about his ministry and his healing and hope. So more people coming to him. And I wonder if we put ourselves just for a moment in Jesus' shoes there and consider how it must have felt to have the demands and the hopes of so many people weighing on him. The demands of a healer and a giver and one who does the work of God in the world are never ending in his time and beyond. There's this endless need of humanity. And I wonder if you put yourself in Jesus' shoes there, if you might perhaps recall a moment in your own life that you felt something like that that sense of endless need of humanity. Maybe you've served once or twice at a soup kitchen, and while you know that you fed someone that meal, you look around and you think, where are they going to get every other meal all the other days? Or maybe you've been on a home-building trip, maybe in another country or on a habitat build in the U.S., and while you know that for that one family, you've completely changed that family tree in the course of their lives, maybe you look around the neighborhood and you think there's still so much more to do. Maybe you went to a protest and you worked for change in a policy and you know that for some people that changes their basic rights, but you look around and think of so many more people in need. And I channel that feeling when I read this scripture. I think about how I imagine Jesus might have felt from time to time as he retreated, as he tried to retreat and the crowds of people came into him. This endless need, and yet we try our best to do what God is asking us to do in the midst of that recognizing that we can only do so much. So after Jesus attempts this retreat, the Gospel of Mark talks about him appointing the twelve, it says. And at this time, it goes through this list of people who are appointed. And something to note about how Mark talks about Jesus calling his disciples is that it's really done in this much shorter version than in a lot of the Gospels. In many other Gospels, We have a lot more context for them being called perhaps out of their vocational lives, away from their families, out of their boats, dropping their nets immediately. And in this particular section, they're really just listed as ones who are called. And that's part of kind of Mark's style. He's sometimes really sparse like that. There's not a lot of connective tissue or lyrical prose that brings things together in the Gospel of Mark. Sometimes it's just the bare bones of it. And in the final section of this morning's scripture, it's one in which accusations of Jesus continue, and we reach this interesting crescendo of Jesus' expansive teachings. And verse 20 says this, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So this sense of being crowded in on. And in that section, we talk about this... uh, eternal sin that Jesus says, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and also about who is my mother and my brother. So there's these two major threads that we might pull out from that final section of chapter 3, among others. 
And the first is this idea of this eternal sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I invite you to wrestle with that for the week ahead. So I subscribe to the idea that a sin is that which separates us from our true selves and from one another and from the sacred and from creation. And actions and thoughts and behaviors and patterns of being that separate us can be understood at times as sin. Whereas actions which unify us with who we truly are, with who our neighbors are, with the sacred and with creation, are perhaps instead in harmony with the working of the Holy Spirit. And your understanding of sin may be completely different, or it might be overlapping with mine, or maybe it's the same, and that's okay. But I'll give you an insight into how I read this with my lens of what sin is. When I read this section from Mark through my understanding of sin, I read that the eternal sin being blasphemy against the Holy Spirit captures this essence of what it is to live a life that is moving against the work of God in the world. And that living such a life undoubtedly results in this disintegration of who one is as a person on a very soul level. So to move against the Spirit is to separate oneself from self and others sacred and creation. And it's in some ways the most comprehensive of sins, and perhaps that's why Jesus emphasized it so much. I don't know. To me, the forgiveness that is withheld from such a person is not so much about a stingy, grace-lacking God who doles out forgiveness to some and not to others. The forgiveness that I think is being talked about here is about a harmony of soul that comes from forgiveness and the disharmony and disintegration that comes from a life in opposition with the Holy Spirit. So to me, this speaks to the idea that to move with the Spirit is to move with integration, is to move in a way that is with God. And when we move against the Spirit, we experience that deintegration and that disharmony in our soul. And it's hard to accept forgiveness from others or ourselves. But I invite you to sit with that this week. And I wonder, why do you think that Jesus emphasizes this statement about the holy sin or about the eternal sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Other thread I raised from you that from this final section is a little fun with family dynamics. This chapter in the Gospel of Mark ends with Jesus' statement that whoever does God's will is his sibling. And I can imagine being Jesus' you know, family of origin, pretty miffed that they were not let in to the space promptly, not given time with Jesus. And there's almost this sense of a lack of hospitality in these words. And yet the point is really clear that Jesus is using these familiar terms, brother, mother, family, these things that we might relate to, and using those to expand the understanding of those around him. So Jesus is saying that family is not defined by blood or even by this idea of this nuclear family separate and distinct from others. Rather, this statement from Jesus pitches this much, much wider tent, this bigger table, that makes clear that family means anyone with a shared identity in doing God's work in the world. And something we often learn as we age is that some of our closest family members are not, in fact, the ones that are related to us by blood or by law or by marriage. Oftentimes, our closest family members are those friends who become family, who become a part of your life based on shared values and experiences. And Jesus is talking about that claiming of siblinghood with all who seek to do God's will in the world. So that beautiful and expansive vision of family and relationship can be so healing and hope-filled in and of itself. 
And so friends, that is our gospel this morning. That is chapter three from the gospel of Mark. And I really encourage you to read it again throughout this week on your own. Read it, take from it what you might talk with others in this room about it throughout the week. Let it come to life for you. I'm going to recap the three things that I take away from it, and I encourage you to think about the things you're going to take away from it too. Three things I take away is this unexpected Jesus, this surprise nature of Jesus. Second thing I take is the demands of the world never ending, and that Jesus understood that too. He's trying desperately to retreat, and the people just keep coming. Third thing I think about is Jesus consistently attempting to widen the welcome, to build a larger table, to inclusify and make sure that everyone feels that siblinghood with one another. And on that 